Welcome to the latest episode of the Silver Screen Superman Podcast. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler. This month, we're actually taking a slight deviation from Superman and looking at Supergirl. Definitely part of the franchise, but doesn't actually have Superman in the film at any point. While Superman 3 was in production, Warner Brothers and the Salkinds paired together to produce Supergirl. This was intended to launch its own franchise, since the Superman films up to that point had been so successful and so popular. Because of the way Superman 3 was received, even though it was profitable, Warner Brothers opted not to continue with Supergirl. So TriStar bought the distribution rights, and it was TriStar that actually released it, even though it was finished while it was a Warner Brothers production. Now, there are some similarities in terms of the way this was produced. So the Selkines are still the producers, and they're the ones that put the team together. And they also started with a strong cast, knowing that there are names that will sell tickets, no matter what the rest of the movie's like. And this actually had an excellent cast. For Supergirl herself, again, they went with an unknown, this time Helen Slater. Doesn't quite nail the role as well as Christopher Reeve did, but she also doesn't have the quality of script to work from that Christopher Reeve had. She also had less experience in the industry. She had done an ABC made-for-TV movie and then came to here. She was also later the major love interest for Michael J. Fox's character in The Secret of My Success. The cast we did have that we recognize include Faye Dunaway, who was an Oscar winner for Network and was nominated for Bonnie and Clyde and other films. There's Brenda Vaccaro, who again is also very recognizable. Peter O'Toole, again, Lawrence of Arabia, other Oscar nominations. Peter Cook, who's probably best known these days as the minister who is covering the marriage in The Princess Bride, the one who is saying that marriage is what brings us together today. Even in the smaller parts, such as Supergirl's parents, we have Mia Farrow and Simon Ward. Mia Farrow is probably best known as Rosemary from Rosemary's Baby, and Simon Ward had previously worked with the Salkinds on The Three Musketeers. On top of that, we have a little bit of casting in the before-they-were-stars kind of sense. The love interest for Supergirl on this film is played by Hart Bachner. He is probably best known these days for playing the scumbag Harry Ellis in Die Hard. There's also a scene we'll be talking about in a little more detail later involving a couple of truckers. One of the truckers is played by Matt Frewer, who would go on to play Max Hedrum, uh, Berlinghoff Rasmussen, an episode of Star Trek Next Generation, and a few other notable roles. The most recent one that stands out in my mind is the role of Pestilence in Supernatural, though that's certainly not his most recent job. And I should note, when I was watching this movie to do the podcast, I was watching the director's cut. I typically like to watch every available cut of the films. In this case, because of the home video rights and how much money the companies are expected to make off it, it's been released twice, both with next to no special features, once in the director's cut and once in the theatrical cut. So the only copy I picked up was the director's cut. At that point, I've paid for the movie twice, and that is enough for this particular film. Some would say it's actually twice more than enough for this particular film. The original draft was quite a bit different than the story we came out with in the end. So the first draft starts off with the destruction of Krypton and the salvation of Argo City. In the comics, Superman's powers are physical, so he's got no particular defense against magic. When Selina makes her move to take over the world, the first thing she does is defeat Superman and wrap him up. Supergirl and the rest of Argo City have the ability to view Earth, and Supergirl was supposed to come through and save him, which meant Christopher Reeve would have a pretty significant role during the film. He opted out shortly before production began, 
just as actually Demi Moore did, since she had originally been cast in the role of Supergirl herself. Superman in the movie is written out from an on-screen presence early on when there's a radio announcement saying that he has gone to another galaxy on a peacekeeping mission. The script had gone through several rewrites. It's got the lowest budget of anything in the franchise to date. Despite that, there's some scenes that work pretty well. When Kara first arrives on Earth, for example, she's doing a flying ballet and just enjoying the powers and enjoying life outdoors for the first time in her life. And that actually works fairly well, at least the early sequences where she's flying on wires. Not so much her first shot on screen when she's coming out of a lake and it's clearly a photo of Helen Slater in a cardboard cutout. Now, I have to admit, one of the reasons I may be enjoying this particular sequence is because it's all about Supergirl flying around in the suit and say what you will about Helen Slater's acting with the additional padding that they gave her natural attributes. She looks very, very good in this suit. But a lot of the things that we see later don't work very well. There's a puppeteered monster that's not very effective. There are special effects that are basically be done by using distorting lenses and cutting things in. A lot of the blue screening in the flight does not look convincing at all, even though the wire work is actually pretty good. A lot of the issues with this film are in the plots, and it, there's a huge dependence on coincidence. A lot of movies can get away with a couple of coincidences, but this has a lot. It starts off with the Omega Hedron just randomly landing at Selena's picnic, and she takes off with it. Supergirl just happens to end up as Lucy Lane's roommate, Lucy being Lois's sister. Selena's partner Nigel, or quasi-partner Nigel, just happens to be one of the teachers at this particular private school. It just so happens that Kyra left Argo with an Omega Hedron detecting bracelet on her wrist, even though no one expected the Omega Hedron to be lost and that she would actually need it. There's just way too much coincidence for this to be acceptable for most audiences. There's also the dependence on stupidity of the characters. For example, the villains don't figure out the secret identity until the very end, in spite of the fact that they have seen Supergirl walk behind something in the middle of the woods and Linda Lee walk out on the other side. We also have plot holes where we see that Supergirl has no powers in Argo City at first. She comes to Earth, she has the powers under the Yellow Sun, she goes to the Phantom Zone and loses her powers until the very end when she's back under the Yellow Sun. Now, when she's flying back home to Argo City, a city that she initially left in a flying spacecraft, she goes back just plain flying. We also have issues where Jimmy Olsen should not only figure out that Linda Lee is Supergirl, but he should also figure out that Clark Kent is Superman, given that, well, Supergirl says Superman is her cousin, Linda Lee says Clark Kent is her cousin, Linda Lee and Supergirl disappear at the same time. There's a little too much coincidence. But that being said, this isn't completely without redeeming features. One of the things that they do try to do is to promote a social message for the first time since Superman and the Mole Men starring George Reeves. Now, Gino Schwark, the director, has done this in other works as well. For example, the season of Smallville, where the spirits of the witches were the major villains, was one in which he had a lot of input and did a fair amount of directing. And the message that came across in that season of Smallville is similar to the one that he was trying to get across here. The message is intended to be pro-women, which is a message I hope we can all get behind. Unfortunately, instead, it often came across as anti-men. It just doesn't promote the message effectively. Instead of having a Joss Whedon style of promoting women by just writing awesome women and surrounding them with normal men. This is more like write normal women and surround them with incompetent men. So it's not so much boosting women as bashing men. And just to support this, let's run through some of the events of the film. The whole thing starts off when the Megahedron is lost as a direct result of Zoltar's irresponsibility. Kara also blames herself for making something fly after Zoltar gave her the Megahedron, and that flies through the layer of saran wrap that seems to be the only thing protecting Argo City from the vacuum of space. 
but it's still largely Zoltar's fault for taking something that he knows the city absolutely depends on and will die in days without and playing with it to make art. When we get to Earth, we find Selina is learning the dark arts from Nigel, and he's been studying them for a lifetime. She's been with him for months and learning from him, and at this point, they're practically on the same level, and she feels as though there's nothing left that she can learn from him, despite the massive amount of time. Now, when Kara comes to Earth as Supergirl, the first encounter she has with people on Earth is a pair of truckers who see her, decide she's attractive, and basically announce their plans to assault her. She asks, why are we doing this? And the character played by Matt Fuhr responds, that's just the way we are. Given the way the rest of the movie plays out, I'm not sure if he means just him and his partner, or if he's speaking about guys in general. So which we is he referring to here? Then Linda gets to the boarding school, and she finds Principal Danvers is popping Tylenol, he's got a headache, he's stressed out, and he's reminding himself it's only days into the semester you have to last the full year. So the principal's already to crack right at the start of the semester. This is when we find out, by coincidence, Nigel, who is at Selena's beck and call the whole film, despite the fact that she's continually abusing him, is a teacher in the school, and he can't control his class either. A little bit later, we meet a female member of the faculty who has complete control over the students, just says a word, they all jump to it, do exactly what she says, she's got control over them, and the respect from them. Now, the male love interest, Ethan, is particularly objectified. He's portrayed as a complete idiot the first time he's actually taking part in conversation, and Selena is just turning him into a toy with a spell, just something she can play with. He doesn't quite work that well. You know, the first thing that he sees is supposed to be what he falls in love with, and he manages to go wandering through town being chased by tractors for one of the longer sequences in the movie, and not actually looking at anyone until Linda Lee saves him. Actually, Supergirl saves him, turns into Linda Lee, then he sees her. Some of that makes sense, since he was trapped inside the, the claws of the front of this thing that they call a tractor on the DVD, but looks more like a backhoe than a tractor. Even then, when this thing is running rampaging through the city and everyone's there to watch it, it's Lucy Lane who jumps into the cab and tries to save Ethan, whereas everyone else, including Jimmy Olsen, is just standing there and watching. Selena sends her shadow to go fight Supergirl, and Supergirl defeats it rather handily. Selena's response, should have known, never send a man to do a woman's job. Kara ends up in the Phantom Zone, and after being there for a couple of days, Zoltar is a complete wreck. He's been punished for losing the Omega Hedron, and he needs Kara to talk him out of it and give the boost, get him back on track so that they can leave the Phantom Zone and save the world. While this is going on, Lucy's protesting Selena taking over the town, and they respond by trying to restrain her. But you know what? It takes two officers to restrain her, only one to restrain Jimmy. So again, every chance they get, they show that the women are superior to men, which, as I said, is not an issue, except for the fact that they often show men in a negative light for contrast, rather than showing women in a positive light. Those are the general comments I have on this film. There's not a lot to it other than that. The director's cut is about half an hour longer than the theatrical cut, but a lot of the conversations and bits that we have don't really add tremendously to what I recall of the theatrical cut. I admit it's been quite some time since I've seen it, uh, but even when I watched the director's cut, I had to then go to the Internet Movie Database and read the notes on the alternate versions to find out what the differences were. Because watching this, there were no scenes that left any impression that I hadn't seen them before. So that's about all we have to say for this entry in the franchise. Join us again next month for the last entry starring Christopher Reeve, namely Superman 4, The Quest for Peace. Please join us then.